Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Jen Jacobs from Northern Illinois University. Today we're talking about her article and also a topic uh, that I'm really interested in, which is study abroad programs. Um, the article title is Experiential Learning of University Students Delivering a Coaching Workshop in Belize, um, published in the Sport Management Education Journal. So I'll put the link to the article in the show notes. Uh, Jen, thanks for coming on. Welcome. Thanks for having me back, Risto. Absolutely. So let me, let's start off with the article about the importance of having a critical coaching workforce with global awareness. Um, this was something that we, uh, in, in a project that I ran at Kelsey Fullerton, we kind of did the same rationale as you, um, and I totally agree with it. Um, but can you start off by defining what you mean by global awareness and why international experiences for undergrads um, pursuing interdisciplinary sport majors is important? Yeah, I think first, be, before even getting into global awareness, is just thinking about like the entity of sport and you know, I, I said this before in, in other interviews and just papers, but I think we're so lucky that we work in sport fields. It's just this evolving entity that's timeless, right? It's been around since ancient Greek and Roman times and competitions and track and field events and races, and that's still around today. But it's so evolutionary in that we've got um, new sports coming up by the day. I'm an avid pickleball player and I, that's mm -hmm. being targeted as one of the fastest growing sports and everything's changing and all these new discoveries in, in the field of sport and physical activity, um, the benefits of it, the dangers of it. And so we're tasked with educating students on something that's so um, timeless yet evolving. And that's kind of got this, you know, conundrum here of how do we keep traditions and foundations, but then um, kind of create a student workforce that is going to be competitive. Um, and so something I think that lends nicely with that is integrating global awareness into any sort of university curriculum. So for physical activity majors, this kind of means recognizing that they're undoubtedly going to be interacting with people or organizations that have different cultures in it. So if they're going into collegiate athletics, of course, it's going to they're going to be seeing international student athletes, um, teams travel abroad, whether it's professional teams, university teams, outreach organizations have all these partnerships that they're fostering with international entities. And then, of course, technology connects people all over the world. And so we just kind of know that sport is this global entity um, and universities are sort of tasked with internationalizing their curriculum um, to prepare cutting edge kind of competitive students for the workforce. Yeah. So we've already sort of seen this in study abroad programs, which have been around for a while. And I know service learning trips continue to be pretty popular. I don't know if I actually want to call my program a study abroad trip because it's so condensed and the literature says study abroad often is like two weeks or even longer and and I've just done one week trips with my group but we'll we'll call it something mm -hmm. similar to that um, but I think one thing that I haven't seen in a lot of programs is an emphasis on professional development so can we actually have them use the skills they're learning in their major classes in a cross-cultural setting and if they can do that then 
really what can't they navigate in their future careers if they can teach the skills that they're supposed to teach to another culture in another country oftentimes in another time zone eating different food like all of those sort of different aspects can build up the competencies they need for wherever they decide to work right and and you use experiential learning theory can you talk about how you use that framework and kind of what that is yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's practically in the title of what it is. It's basically um, emphasizing the experience over the content um, as a learning technique. So it's sort of creating and recreating knowledge with hands-on engaging experiences. But a huge component is the reflective part of it. So yes, we're learning through doing, but we have to have intentional experiences for reflection incorporating incorporated into it. So that looks like um, having the students use their five senses to reflect on like their thoughts, their feelings, their perceptions, their behaviors, um, and how that can really turn into new skill building. Yeah. Um, something about experiential learning theories, it also sort of views the environment as an actual, I guess, teacher or person and, and and looks at how someone can immerse themselves in an environment and come out with new skills. And so I think that lends perfectly to happen in another country and seeing what can happen. Yeah. And it, and it does sound like, you know, having that environment be Belize is definitely a, a way to learn. So can you talk to me about the Belize program? I'm, I'm really curious about kind of how it works and what it was and, you know, how often do you go to Belize? Yeah, um, I wish I could go all the time. Um, it is an amazing country, and I can say more about that. But this Belize program um, started from a partnership originally supported by the U.S. Department of State. They have what's called a Sports United grant. And um, in 2013, my colleague, um, Dr. Paul Wright, um, received a grant to support a three-year exchange Um centered around using sport as a tool for um, social development. And Belize was identified as a country um, for a variety of reasons that um, the U.S. wanted to foster better relationships with and and um, kind of explore learning from them and them learning from us. And so from 2013 to 2016, um, a group of primarily faculty um, from NIU from Northern Illinois University, and then um, some of our partners in Belize who we were sort of developing relationships with early on in the National Sports Council, in some of their other government agencies related to sport, um, participated in this three-year exchange. And we brought sport administrators and coaches up to the U.S. to receive training, and then some of our faculty and students would go down to Belize um to deliver you know anything from what does it look like to coach using um a youth development based model to how to tape an athlete's ankle when they um you know sprain it to first aid measures and they just hadn't been exposed to that type of learning before mm -hmm. and so that was kind of this three-year deal that happened a bit ago fast forward to the last several years we were so fortunate. I mean, I think this is the dream for a lot of grants is that things keep happening after the grant period is over. Right. Um, and we were so fortunate to keep that relationship going, honestly, based on almost the friendships that we developed down there. 
And so I just said, I'm not ready to stop going to Belize anymore and I want to keep doing this. And so with the support of our university, we were able to facilitate some more student focused trips. Um, and the one that this paper particularly talks about is um, the first trip um, I took was just students. I was able to bring down um, five students. Um, one of them was a graduate student, so she was more my partner in the program, but then four upper, upper level undergraduate students majoring in different sport majors. Um, they didn't know each other. They just had prior experience with me in class, and they were embarking on this um, adventure of, hey, we're going to prepare for this experience for eight weeks through meeting on campus and talking about the culture. Um, and you're going to eventually go to this country and teach um, coaches um, completely on your own. So I really took a backseat and said, my students are going to develop the content and deliver the content. And I'm going to be there as a supporting force and it went really, really well. We we did a four-day um, coaching workshop with 25 national-level coaches in Belize. Um, and these are coaches that are at the highest level in their country but didn't really have any formal training in coaching. Hmm. They don't have any, um, any university-level programs in the country focused on coaching or sports sciences at all. Like the closest degree they could get is – um, like an associate's degree in physical education, but that would look much, much different than the education here in the U.S. Interesting. And so I I have previously applied for that Sports United Department of State grant, did not get it, mm -hmm. but great program. And um, it's it's interesting. So I, I've never been to Belize. I've, mm -hmm. you know, I've had friends that have gone there, but can you give me a little bit of context about that culture there and how it relates to sport and education. I know you talked about how they don't have coaching degrees necessarily at the university level, but how does that, like, the culture in Belize kind of facilitate what, what you did there? Yeah, I mean, first, I just, I love the country so much. I, I it's, it, it is going to be in my future for sure, probably sabbatical or in other ways, just I've fallen in love with it so much. So just to like tell you just broadly a little bit about it, um, it is the only English speaking country in Central America. So that makes it really sort of um, easy to transition. Um, we didn't have to learn a new language. Um, they, they do have a lot of dialects that are super cool. So they'll go into their Creole um, language. And even though they're saying um, English words, we oftentimes can't understand what they're saying or their their phrases are so cool that like we're always learning new things for example like to say hello in the morning or to say like what's up um we would say like where do you go on which like if you break down it sort of is saying like what's going on mm. but it's just a learn something new but not actually have to learn like a, right. a whole new language um so another thing about Belize is it's a really small country in population. So the entire country is less than 400,000. Um, and about half the population is under 18. So that kind of creates this cool um, environment for like true social change to happen through generation. If half the population is under 18, it's mostly kids, right? And so we potentially have um, this uh, opportunity to change the culture with the reach that we have. So because of all these partnerships that we had built in the past, there was at one time where we're, we were figuring out that we were able to kind of 
touch most of the nation's youth through all of our interactions with the coaches and they would they would um, you know be heads of school districts and whatever and so at one point we figured out we were mostly able to um, reach almost every uh, district in the nation um, with some of our training which is kind of a cool thing um, that seems a bit rare yeah Um, it's a tropical nation too so you know definitely makes for a lot of fun relaxing time when you want to get away from northern illinois in march yeah (laughs) um they've got like hundreds of coastal islands um oh and their seafood is delicious are you are you a shrimp eater russo absolutely yeah okay so i actually don't even eat meat um normally but i make an exception every time i go to police and eat shrimp pretty much every day um because it's so phenomenal um so just some cool cultural aspects and sport is a big deal there. Um, they they play um, football, so our, what we call soccer, um, basketball, volleyball, track and field are sort of the big youth sport areas. Um, but there are no professional level leagues there at all. So past their secondary school, which is our high school, there's not really opportunities for competition, um, which is unfortunate, but might be changing in the future. Um, and then along with them being a developing nation, they do have some challenges. Um, within the last decade, they were um, even blacklisted by the U.S. as a place to travel because their homicide rate was so high. And with a low population, they're actually not having tons and tons of homicides compared to what we might see here in the U.S. But like per capita, it, it's pretty high. And, and that's primarily due to it being sort of on the drug trafficking route from South America up to Mexico. So um, there, there is sort of a, a, a high gang presence there that that will oftentimes um, recruit youth, which is sort of an area that, that our program tried to help with is, you know, if youth have kind of idle time, they're getting recruited by gangs, but can we fill that idle time with positive sports programs instead? Um, And so that's kind of the angle we tried to use is sport as this hook. We already know sport is popular and and revered there as a positive thing. But can we make it a more formal tool to help with social growth and social change? It still boggles my mind that half the population can be under 18. Like that's Mm -hmm. such a large percentage. But um, but again, a great way to be able to have an outreach program, especially, you know, providing physical activity or sports or, um, and, and being such a small country, it is interesting that if you have just like 25 people who are really key players in, in that, or in that country in sports Mm -hmm. or recreation, that you could actually have a huge reach. Um, Mm -hmm. so let me, let me go back to the study. Can you talk about the methods, uh, I'm especially interested in the use of Instagram as a data collection method. Yeah, I'll, we used um, a lot of data collection um, measures in this study. I'll tell you like briefly about the traditional ones, but definitely want to talk about Instagram as well. Um, so basically we our, our participants in the study were the four students that traveled with us. It was two males and two females. Um, and Given that we're, we had the framework of the study being experiential learning theory, we of course wanted to learn about their experiences um, leading up to the trip, 
during the trip and after the trip. So um, some of the more traditional sources we used um, to collect this information was pre and post trip interviews. So we kind of interviewed them beforehand, asking them about, you know, have you been out of the country before? What do you perceive about Belize? How do you feel about teaching content? Um, to people from a different background. Um, and then post-trip, we sort of asked them again, how did their experiences match up with those expectations you talked about originally? Um, we also had the participants um, reflect on um, in writing after each of their orientation sessions. So sort of like a class, a course at the university, we met weekly um, talking about Belize culture and helping plan their sessions and devising the content they wanted to share. And then we had them sort of reflect on that in writing um, each week. But my partner, um, Carissa Kuypers, um, and then the other researchers in the study who I should acknowledge as well, which is Kevin Richards and Paul Wright, mm -hmm. a phenomenal team. Um, but my partner, Chris, and I were trying to figure out um, how do we collect data while we're in country in a way that one isn't too arduous for us and the participants, right? Because there's hundreds of other things that are going to be on our mind while we're in another country trying to deliver things. But then two, like, how do we do it in a way that doesn't disrupt the like experience and like, okay, time out, let's put on our researcher hat right. The, right. and the participants have to answer these questions, right? So we were trying to think about like, what will be empowering to them? Um, what will feel authentic? Um, and like, what is something they just do anyways? And like, ding, 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 social media. Mm -hmm. um, so we thought about using Instagram as a tool for reflection. Um, we know it speaks their language um, and, and we sort of liked the idea of it being a self-generated reflection versus like, let's spend tons of time creating really um, detailed and, and thoughtful like interview guides and, and questions that are probably too long anyways. Um, and, and said, let's keep it simple. So for those of you that aren't super familiar with Instagram. Um, it's it's a picture sharing platform. It really um, highlights the visual. Um, and then there's it can be accompanied with text. Um, and so what we did is we created um, a group page that everybody had to log into. And each day we were in country, we would post a prompt, but a very open ended prompt like day one was like, just touch down in Belize City. Where's your head at? Like, show us through your eyes. And um, participants were um, encouraged to post pictures and you can post up to 10 pictures in each post or video uh, even video clips um, and then reflect with captions as well and we didn't even put like a word limit on anything we just said you know reflect as much as you want and most times they um, I think when we actually transferred everything to a word document it was like over 100 pages of mm. text which yeah, would lot. have been yes would have been more if we would have like we wouldn't have gotten that much if we even interviewed them i don't think so we loved that it was self-generated it was using the senses stimulating like you know visual and even like sound because you could post videos so was this it was to, was this set to public or private so like when they're posting could i have you know gone on instagram followed this page so did they understand that they were doing this publicly or was it like a closed group? 
Yeah, that's a super important question, especially in terms of the research aspects, like our institutional review board really wanted to know that as well. So we discussed it with the participants and they wanted it set to private, but they wanted the freedom to um, allow people who requested to follow them to say yes. Um, and so we did have like a good amount of followers, mostly Belizeans who wanted to follow along and like some of some people in our department. Um, so they recognized that they were posting things publicly to the followers that they gave permission to to see. Okay. Um, but you couldn't just log in right now and follow us um, no. without getting approval. Sorry. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's I think that's interesting because those are now that we're moving into collecting data through you know social media that is public sometimes people can turn it to private but then you add this whole question about the institutional review board what's mm -hmm. ethically okay how different is the reflection i would think it would be very different if i said this is a hundred percent public everybody mm -hmm. can see it I think people would be way less open because they're like, well, I don't know if I want to give my true thoughts here because it's yep. it's going to be something that's that's public. So, yeah. And like a side note is I use Instagram as a tool in my classes as well. So we have I have I have way more Instagrams than you ever want to know about. But like we we use it as a reflective tool for my grad level and undergrad level classes. And I have had some students like um, who aren't super comfortable with it as a measure and, and have made accommodations where they didn't have to participate. But but as a whole, students are like, oh, thank goodness I don't have to do, the, you know, like those kind of dumb reflective papers that all student that all professors make us do the mm -hmm. two to three page, like reflect on yeah. how this, you know, they just find it more authentic. They get into the hashtags and the emojis and and they it's something like some students talked about they like mixing the personal and the work so mm. they'll they'll like the class page from their personal page so that when they're scrolling through their news feed and they're seeing i don't know their friends post about the weekend or someone's puppy but then they're seeing a class post show up and they like to be able to you know peek and see what's going on with their classmates and then move on back to the personal which i think is very interesting <laughs> yeah no definitely i um, I run the uh, Mason Physical Education Department Instagram very poorly because I'm I'm not on Instagram. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't like I I ask my partner. I'm like, hey, can you uh, can you show me how to do this because I can't look up this person and <laughs> and I just posted something last last week about um, we have a state conference and the picture was like too big for the square. And I'm just like, can somebody please give me a tutorial for this? Because I know our, cause I see our students follow the account. I know they're actively on Instagram and we need to be able to reach them that way. But I think it was a bad idea to have me run that Instagram. <laughs> so, but taking that to the next level of using it in my classes, like, I really like that idea of mm -hmm. going to, and we talk about this all the time for, for, you know, future teachers in, in my area, like we're like, Hey, you need to be able to speak your students language. Like you need to be able to get to what they're enjoying and how they're talking. And for me to say, Hey, I need that two to three double, you know, two to three page double spaced reflection with these prompts. That's not the way they communicate with their friends, but, they communicate with their friends through Instagram. So mm -hmm. I, I love that idea. 
Yeah, and I think like in my my field of sports psychology and so motivation and goal setting and all that stuff, and I think it just fosters better internal motivation. Like there, I don't require my students to comment on other people's posts, but mm-hmm. it just happens and yeah. it's authentic and it's you know it's not that I like what you said about this, but maybe you can think about this. It's like oh hey that's super cool that reminds me of you know fill yeah. in the blank and I think like when we're giving them more autonomy and and willing to go the extra mile to speak their language, it it fosters the type of learning that we hope is happening. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So let's let's move on to kind of the results piece. I I love reading about the positive experiences of the participants and how they had you know during this teaching program. Um, can we talk about each of the themes that you discuss and maybe we can start off at the top with per, uh, personal and professional growth. Yeah. So the the general sense from the participants is they they started to get out of their comfort zone and and stretch their growth in both personal and professional ways. Um, For for at least um, two of the students on this trip, they didn't have a lot of international experience. Um, One of of the participants even talked about in our group, one of our group sessions, like he has to buy a suitcase or, you know, he's not sure what to pack or things like that. And so, we're seeing that this has a deeply personal impact. Um, one of our participants, Mansa, said, I kind of got comfortable being uncomfortable. Hmm. And that was leading up to the trip and also during the trip. And so we're seeing that type of kind of stretching into this new environment um, happening. Um, but then also we're seeing um, the professional side of it as well. And so one of our participants, John said, I'm going to have the privilege of being surrounded with individuals who are going into the same career field as me or already established in it. And so they recognize they're in this room of people who are highly revered in their country for the work they're doing. And then our students are sort of just about to embark on that future career in their own lives. And so they just kind of felt the the power, the the like the environment impacting um, that they're going to be stretching to new limits. And this also looked like um, developing their teaching skills. That was kind of the most potent part of their professional growth they talked about. And so in the country, um, they were delivering all of the coaching sessions um, on their own. And we had sort of set the mission to be highly interactive and highly learner center or student centered, I guess I'll say, but um, we'll call it learners because, you know, mm-hmm. we're all students in a way. Um, and in the Belizean culture, that's huge. That was intentionally set based on my prior knowledge working in Belize, which is interaction is just highly important. There's no scenario where they're going to be comfortable and engaged where there's one person at the front of the room lecturing and talking, mm-hmm. which truthfully, who likes that anymore anyways. Um, but in this culture, they have to be moving and interacting. And um, so the the participants in the study um, were really able to refine those specific teaching skills. Um, and some of them talked about being able to live it and teach it. So they were living the interaction and the team building and the icebreakers, but also teaching the coaches how to integrate that into their own teams which is kind of this cool phenomenon, the whole kind of walk the talk thing. Um, And along with that, like one of our participants, one of my favorite um, 
reflections was Sue who said, like, I steer the wheel and they control the speed. Mm-hmm. And so along with that, they're, they're recognizing that, you know, we're coming in with some values and biases and material we want to share, but we're ultimately, like, for lack of a better word, in their house um, and and have things to learn from them and, and can kind of adapt in the moment to um, how we can best meet their needs. Yeah. So what about the second thing you talked about developing and maintaining relationships? Yeah, that was huge. Um, so as I mentioned, um, I've had a lot of prior experience in Belize and they are such a relational country. Like um, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about it, but like, they, they slow everything down because they emphasize the people so much and the like spending time in the greetings. Um, but, but in this, um, with our participants, we saw that collaboration was a huge theme and that was both within our American team and, and we hadn't known each other in advance. Um, but a couple of cool um, tidbits from the participants was um, Brooke said it takes time to develop bonds, to build chemistry and trust. But I think we broke a record with our team. Um, John, one of our other participants who has coached um, for years and years, said, with all honesty, our team's chemistry is one of the strongest I've experienced. So we went down with a really, really solid team. But then that sort of um, trickled into growing the team with the the Belizean colleagues, as we would come to call them as well. Um, And I think what we saw was a couple things facilitated the relational aspects. First off was the openness of giving and receiving feedback. Um, Within our team, we did a lot of um, training on how to critique um, or both critique, so search for, but then also communicate, deliver feedback, um, which we think is just an important professional tool. And and so we saw that um, one of the participants talked about like, feedback happens without prompting now. It's it's in the moment, it's at dinner, it's leading up to the sessions, it's when we're out having a drink at the end of the night. People are giving each other helpful, encouraging and insightful feedback, which was really cool. Yeah. And then so, sort of the second idea was the, the building relationships with the Belizeans. Um, and the participants um, talked about how my prior relationship in the country really helped with that as well. They felt comfortable. They felt like, oh, like these are Dr. J's good friends from, you know, the past eight years. Like, let, let's fold right in. And and I would even use the word family for some of the people that I've worked with down there for so long. They, they come visit me annually now mm-hmm. um, up here in the States. So the, the fact that we had this sort of core as relational building and just kind of camaraderie helped facilitate that um, learning in the training sessions as well. Yeah, and I I've, uh, kind of experienced a similar thing in, in Brazil about the maintaining relationships and just the different culture and the colleague I went with uh, to Brazil is Brazilian. So, you know, we spent a lot of time before we even traveled learning about the culture and and just understanding that when you're sitting or you're standing around in a circle with like five or six people and you're about to leave, you can't just say like in the US, you're just like, hey, see you guys, bye. Mm -hmm. You have to like individually say goodbye to everybody and like (laughs) embrace them or whatever it is and then you leave it. Otherwise it's like, it's almost considered rude to just say goodbye to everybody in, in certain 
parts, right? So not like, obviously Brazil is a gigantic country, but we really learn like you have to put in the time to maintain and build those relationships. It's not just you come in and you're instantly like accepted, you know? And so I really like that about those, um, about those kind of different cultures. But let me, let me ask you about that last theme, which was learning about and engaging with culture. How, how did that uh, pan out? Yeah, I mean, like you would expect, the participants talked about, here are some similarities I see to my culture, to U.S. culture, but here are some huge differences. And the one I find so fascinating, because I live it when we're down there, is the differences in pace and time. Mm-hmm. So it is a Caribbean country, so it definitely comes with that, like, island time flair, mm-hmm. we'll call it. Over over the years, I've been become more relaxed about it, but it really used to stress me out. But for example, I'm, I'm telling you, so, so we have this training session planned a year in advance on the calendar. And day one, um, you know, we're doing check-in at 8 a.m. and we're right there and we're ready. And people start sort of waltzing in around maybe 9.30, 9.45. And that's completely normal. And, yeah. and we've come to plan for that now and, and, and can kind of take off our like rigid American lens and be like, oh, we have to start on time. But like, no, we're in Belize. We're going to start when the Belizeans want to start and on the, the pace and the, the tone that they want to start at. Um, and for, for the participants in the study, that was very, very notable. So, um, for example, um, Brooke said, I think the biggest thing is they're very easygoing um, and they maybe get a bit lost in the moment or lose track of time when they do that. Um, but that makes me want to learn what they actually learn from that. Um, and then someone else talked about um, people in Belize are a bit slower. It's not hustle and bustle, but what do they gain from taking it slower, taking everything in? Maybe they have more care and consideration. And so what could kind of potentially be a negative thing through the American lens is something that our students were starting to view as, oh, maybe we have something to learn from them. And and we all started to like walk a little slower and become a little bit more relaxed, but without um, kind of compromising quality of it. In fact, it probably enhanced the quality of what we were doing. Um, so that was a pretty cool um, aspect they talked about in engaging with the culture. Um, and then the other one was kind of the common language of sports. Um, so they found it inspiring that sport was such a positive entity in their country, but really there's no professional sport at all. So while we all have our alliances and loyalty to teams and jerseys and, you know, can sit down and watch any game on, on the TV at night, um, they don't have that. Um, but yet they still love this game and, and you know, one participant talked about they truly play for the love of the game because there's no salaries, there's no scholarships, there's no pro sports around that. And so, like, as you know, I'm sure from, you know, your cross-cultural experiences and many people know sport is sort of that universal language that we can all kind of gather around. And so what you would find happening um, on lunch breaks or at the end of the day is um, you know, we'd find a stray ball in the building and grab it and, and go play pickup ball, whatever, football or basketball or whatever we could. And that was just another cool way to kind of connect with um, people from another culture. Yeah. And and I think that there is a lot that the U.S. can learn from cultures that kind of slow down 
and take. I mean, I, I think the Brazilian culture is similar, and I have a, a doctoral student who's working with me who is from Brazil, and she's like, yeah, lectures start 15 minutes after they're supposed to start. And, like, <laughs> we were talking about, we went to my colleague's house for dinner on Friday, and, you know, I tried to time traffic, and we got there early, and... I'm like, okay, so in the U.S., you can't really show up early to things, but it's okay to show up in these types of events for this much later, like 15 to maybe 30 minutes late to, like, I don't know, an open dinner invite or something is kind of okay. And she's like, okay. So she's, like, taking all of these notes to understand how it is. But I think, you know, in the U.S., we're so time consistent. It's like this is, like, I'm sure that your schedule, like, you look at, okay, I have a 10 to 11, and then I have an 11 to 12 meeting, and then I have a 1 to 2 meeting, and it's like every meeting goes exactly at the time and goes to the end, and you just kind of get caught up in it and for, forget sometimes about maintaining those relationships and kind of slowing down and observing. Yeah, that's what that's the, that's the sacrifice, right? And I think you would never hear from a Belizean like, oh, let me cut this conversation short because I have to go. I, mm -hmm. And so instead of like, oh, they're late because they were, I don't know, sitting at home and being lazy. No, that's never what it is, at least what I've seen in our experiences. It's always it's always they don't want to cut short the interactions. Yeah. Or I'm thinking like on, on a day we took the um, group shopping um, into town. Um, our, our partner down there, um, her name's Kaya Katush. She's actually probably the highest profile athlete in the country. So she's a bit of a celebrity, which contributes to what I'm about to tell you. But from parking our car to making it to the first store, we had to walk, I don't know, two blocks maybe. And that took about 45 minutes because she runs into every single person on the street who knows her and she spends time talking with them and then introducing us and then sharing what we do mm -hmm. and everything that is like top priority is connecting with people. So of course you're gonna be late for whatever commitment you have because you're, you know that the the commitment of to the people is kind of at the same level of commitment to any of the obligations that they have. Yeah, absolutely. So I I got two more questions for you. The first one mm -hmm. is just to kind of get a little bit more about the main aspects of the study that were kind of fundamental in creating authentic experiences and this unique social environment for the participants. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I would say having a really um, kind of core emphasis of the program being relationship building um, was important in this study, which kind of aligns with the framework of experiential learning theory. Experiential learning theory doesn't have any sort of relational component built into it, but because um, the experience was relationship building and connecting cross-culturally, we found that to be a really important intended outcome and sort of set that as a core program aim. Um, and so I think that was really important to create the authentic experiences for the participants. I also think um, we spent quite a bit of time on the pre-trip training aspect of it. Um, and this looked like both to bond the group, right? You know, we're about to go spend um, all hours of the day in another country with this small group of people. We better have a pretty solid um, kind of team chemistry going. But also the cultural immersion part was really important. And something that I really liked that we did um, in the training was we connected each 
um, participant in advance with what we called their Belizean buddy. Um, and they had to foster a relationship with somebody from that country through asking them questions like, what do you do for fun and stuff like that. And we tried to keep it very open-ended and like, so he, we connected people who I had prior relationships with that I knew would go really good with our American participants. Mm -hmm. um, and so they kind of had the opportunity to build an ally and, and also just kind of search about the culture from somebody from the horse's mouth rather than from Dr. J who can just talk about it and not actually live it. Right. right. So that was a big part. And then I would say, honestly, um, the, the social media aspect of the study was, was really something that came out um, in terms of creating the richness of the experience. Um, part of um, experiential learning theory is that reflective component and finding a way to really kind of get a bang for your buck is um, facilitating that thinking. And the, the way that we found to do it that was very rich and intentional and fun and, and exciting and also just spoke their language was um, through that Instagram reflection. Yeah. So moving forward, what what are a couple like suggestions you have for future program developers and researchers looking at programs similar to this? Yeah, I would I would recommend spending a ton of time on like what are the intended aims and what is your mission from this? and. I mean mission truly as like you're building almost a business or you're building an entity and like my mission crossed with my personal values, my professional values, and then that came into the team mission and, and that really looked like we wanted relationship building and we wanted growth. Um, and so that informed the kind of theoretical framework that informed all aspects of the program, the implementation of it, the training, the delivery, even the evaluation. And it doesn't always turn out the way where you can really walk the talk, but I think if there are opportunities for program developers to do that is really develop a, a rich foundational mission um, that can kind of cross all aspects of the program, that sort of synergy or alignment is just gonna be very fruitful for all participants involved. Yeah. Um, and then I also think um, having an awareness of what engaging in cross-cultural experiences um, looks like or should look like is important. Um, if if the program developer is from the US, um, it's important to recognize that we have resources and biases and just attitudes that are going to create a power differential, especially when working with a developing nation. So in a lot of the um, research that we've done based off our work in Belize, we've explored kind of the great American savior um, mindset or kind of fallacy that can come out, which is the Americans think that they're coming to like save or deposit knowledge on like a developing country who has some sort of deficiency. And that's never something that can go away because it's just sort of part of the culture that we're, we're part of, um, but definitely something to acknowledge and work against. And so I think we spent a lot of time with the um, students helping understand that this is a mutual partnership. We're going to be learning as much, probably more from um, the Belizeans as they m might learn from the sessions that we're sharing. Um, so it's not this depositing knowledge thing, it's this more exchange. Um, and so definitely that should be an important factor for 
future program developers to consider. Yeah, and I'm so happy you brought that up because I was going to ask about that. Um, you know, we we have a paper in press now about our study abroad program, and the reviewers really pushed back on this idea of like the white savior complex of going down to a um, a different country and how did you address that? And we we took a lot of time explaining about the culture and you know we were we were basically going in to a high school and a residential high school and teaching American sports. So there was a part of you know, we were teaching baseball and they don't play baseball, but the students really liked it and enjoyed it because it was so different. And and I think that that's a, that's a huge piece to make sure that you're not falling into that trap um, of, of basically going and colonizing through sport because that's, you know, we look at cricket around the world. Like definitely the places that cricket is popular are former like colonies of, of Great Britain. So mm-hmm. I think that those are important things to bring up. Um, another question I have for you, even though I lied, I said I only have two, but now I have <laughs> another question. Uh, you talked earlier on about that two week, uh, you know, like not saying that this is a true study abroad because you don't go for that kind of quote unquote limit. And I know that there's a bunch of research talking about that over two week period or versus a semester or versus a whole year abroad. And a lot of students go on these shorter trips. Have you ever thought about expanding the the program to stay longer? And what are the kind of constraints against that? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to explore like more like kind of a month um, long experience. I think that would be a nice sweet spot for students to still make it feel like, oh, I really have to make every minute matter, but get more of that immersion. And I think that's why in these kind of this shorter week um, phase, we spend so much time on the front end, sort of cheating the immersion part. So, you know, we're doing we're doing video calls with Belizeans. They're watching like Belizean um, morning shows and just we're, we're trying to um, do the immersion in this really small period and then when our plane touches down it's like go time like okay we're we're on the clock like it's performance time we're delivering our um you know we're delivering our sessions and so you had all your learning in advance and of course you're going to keep learning so it's like a whirlwind i mean i think we all probably sleep for two weeks after our, yeah. our week in belize um I would love to explore the, the longer um, aspects of it, but um, you know, I know you know the challenges with this is kind of the funding to support mm-hmm. things like that. Um, we're so fortunate that these trips that we've done um, have been at no cost to the participants, and so we're able to um, kind of recruit students from diverse backgrounds who don't have means to be traveling. Um, I think if there was more support both internally through our universities, but then also, um, you know, through through State Department grants or, or whatever funding sources we could um, have to, to emphasize this cross-cultural learning, um, it would be a very important venture. Yeah. Well, awesome. I, I think the program seems amazing, and I'm really hoping that once we kind of get back to a normal travel uh post-pandemic that you can kind of do this again. I, I sure am itching to get our program off the ground. And um, I'll, I'll use this 
to self-promote, I guess. Uh, we're running a, a, a program to Finland in end of May of 2021 to June. It's a two-week program uh, to study about the Finnish education system and sport health promotion and physical activity promotion in Europe. So there's two separate classes that that are taught. It's open to anybody um, at, at any university or anybody. It's just like an open course that you can enroll in. So if you want to go check out Finland with me, um, let me know. Shoot me a shoot me a message. Um, are your classes they run during the spring break? Is that right? Is that why you have it a week yeah. or is it over summer? Yeah, we do it over spring break. Okay, and so um, that's a that's a again a great time to get away from northern uh, Illinois to a tropical country. So um, not a terrible place to stay. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> so I'll put in the um, link to the full article so people can read the paper. Uh, and again, uh, thanks Jen for coming on. I really appreciate it, and uh, this has been a great podcast. So thanks. Thanks, Risto. Appreciate it. Bye. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.